traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Here we go in three, two, one. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to improve your practice as an athletic trainer. I am Jeremy Jackson, host of the Sports Medicine Broadcast. We are live with the 2023 Memorial Hermann Sports Medicine Update. We're talking about preparedness to throw. So Chris Galina is a physical therapist. Talking about preparedness to throw with Ryan Collins. Ryan has a... Uh, if you if you listen to the podcast for a while, you have seen that Ryan tends to to go towards the throwing type uh, uh, podcast episodes. So this is right up his alley, and I'm excited to be part of this. So um, thanks for joining us again. This is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com/slash/preparedness to throw. All right, Chris. So uh, we just had an opportunity to listen to you talk about youth athletes, uh, but just in general, throwing athletes in general, talking about the the injury risks. Uh, at all ages, and then how we can get them back to throwing. So I want to kind of run down what you were able to discuss, but also in general just things uh, that a parent or a coach uh, or even a a youth athlete would need to know about this unfortunate uh, rising issue in in, uh, baseball specifically. I think uh, as you kind of uh, talked about, the ability to play year-round has become an issue, good or bad. Right. You have travel teams, select teams, showcases, uh, lots of opportunity to throw. Absolutely. And so there's not a typical downtime in the calendar now uh, for our uh, youth athletes going all the way up to high school and beyond. So uh, just first off, I want to kind of talk about the common youth injuries that are out there, uh, kind of hit on those, and then uh, what we're looking at whenever we, we get to that point. Okay. Yeah, so I think the rise that we're seeing is more traumatic injuries in the youth athletes. Previously, it'd be more the strains, sprains, uh, little impingement symptoms, which we do still see a significant amount of. But now we're seeing blowouts of the Tommy John ligament at 10 to 12 years old or the medial apophysitis where the UCL is actually ripping off the growth plate at the medial epicondyle, which we really hadn't seen too much in the past. But again, kids are throwing harder. They're throwing more. um, They're trying to achieve the best they can be because that's what gets them to the next level. Um, At the shoulder, we're seeing similar things. So labral tears, which have been common throughout baseball, but we're seeing them younger and younger. Um, Overload symptoms, especially of the rotator cuff. um, And we treat that a lot in the clinic and we have good success with that, but we're seeing more and more throwers in our clinic just because they're throwing so much. So as a parent, uh, of a 10-year-old, right? You're going to want to know what are some signs and symptoms to look for, right? Um, and then also why, you know? Uh, you know, if, if I don't have any experience playing sports, why is my son or daughter getting hurt, right? So you mentioned with throwing, uh, throwing too much. Like, um, is it the volume of throwing over the course of a year? Is it the volume of throwing in the course of a game? What are, what are parents and coaches needing to look for? Yeah, I think it's honestly everything combined. So if you're throwing throughout the year, we know that's a high-risk factor. If you're throwing harder, it's a high-risk factor. Uh, If you're throwing multiple pitches in a game, it's also a high-risk factor. That's actually the number one. And all of these things combined contribute to fatigue 
and fatigue has been shown to increase the risk of injury in the throwing athlete greater than any other statistic that we've looked at. So uh, radar guns, good thing or bad thing? Bad thing in the youth athlete. Right. Okay. And unfortunately, you're seeing that, right? Because velocity is the number one thing that people look for. And unfortunately, it's also the thing that uh, gets somebody, uh, you know, rated. You know, you're going to have a higher rating that with a higher velocity as you get closer and closer to scholarships and so on and so forth. And that's what showcases are kind of doing. Um, how about rest? How do we know what's the appropriate amount of rest for these athletes? Yeah, so there are multiple resources out there that show how much rest you should have in between games, uh, how, many, how much rest they should have uh, in between practice, in between seasons. Usually we suggest that no athlete, especially youth athletes, should be pitching greater than eight months out of the year. I think that's a little bit high, to be honest, just based on the amount of injuries that I see. Eight months is a long amount of time, especially if they're playing fall, spring, and summer ball. Um, so... I would almost suggest that maybe pitch two seasons if that's your primary position and then take a season off, focus on hitting, focus on fielding, be athletic. And then like we talked about in the lecture, um, sports specialization is a huge issue in uh, today's youth athletes. We're seeing them younger and younger just playing one sport to try and become elite, but statistics show that it has no difference uh, in terms of getting them to the next level. You mentioned positions. Uh, pitchers obviously get the most uh, attention. Are there positions on the field that you would not want to combine with being a pitcher? Yeah, I think the positions that uh, combine high volume and high velocity throwing. So the number one that we try and avoid is pitcher and catcher. Although the intent of the throw from the catcher is not as great as pitching, obviously, it's still a high volume of throws throughout a game. Every single pitch, there's a reaction where the catcher has to throw it back or they have to even do a throw down at max velocity with honestly minimal rest in between that. Yeah, I mean, a catcher, if he catches the whole game, is going to probably uh, have a higher volume of throws than the pitchers, if the, especially if the pitchers are getting pulled and re relievers come in. So your total volume at the end of the game is potentially higher. That's absolutely true. Right. And then the next game, if they are catching, the coach is going to look at him and say, hey, it's your time to pitch because you didn't pitch yesterday. Correct. And I've seen more and more catchers in the last couple of years, primary catchers that don't even pitch that have these elbow and shoulder injuries that pitchers do. All right, so now let's talk about the breaking balls, changes of uh, you know ages. When's it appropriate to start working on breaking balls? Is it fastball change-up only? How long do they need to hold on to that before their repertoire starts to increase? And obviously, kids, you know, watching their favorite major league pitchers want to start throwing breaking balls so they can you know start striking out their friends. Absolutely. So, as James Andrews has famously said, should not throw a curveball until you can shave. Now, that's a pretty general statement, but it holds true that they've gone through a development phase. Their growth plates are becoming stronger and closing, and they may be able to withstand the um, stressors of a curveball or a slider. However, I believe that mechanics and efficiency during the throw is more key. If they can efficiently throw a fastball and a changeup, which are extremely effective in the youth athlete, if they throw a good fastball and a good changeup, they can strike anybody out. That's completely true. Everyone wants to add more pitches to their repertoire, but a lot of times they'll have them uh, age out a little bit more and get into that 15, 16-year-old range before they really start throwing with more intent um, with the curveballs in the slider, just because we know there's a high risk of injury. So a kid who's playing, uh, as a coach, as a parent, what signs and symptoms do we need to look for? Because, I mean, if, if the kid doesn't say anything, they love to play, they're not going to complain. 
what, uh, as a coach or a parent, should you look for in-game and then also before and after game? Yeah, I think this is one of the toughest things just because communication between coach, parent, and uh, athlete is going to be kind of limited. Like you said, they're not going to say as much. If they have a significant injury, they will say something. But we're looking for things like signs of breakdown and efficiency during the throw, um, kind of lagging, um, potentially not wanting to throw as much or showing hesitation, like with more mound visits, uh, losing accuracy on the mound, that's a big one. Um, Even just velocity. Just kind of seeing that over, right. overall breakdown. Yeah, right. and if we're looking at velocity, but this is the game we play where it's like, we don't have a radar gun or do we have a radar gun? Sure. I mean, sometimes it's just the eye test, right? I Absolutely. Mean, the start of the yeah. game, towards the end of the, you know, fifth, sixth inning in a youth league, you can tell the difference between this, the pop and his fastball at the, the oh, start yeah. of the season to the end, or the start of the game to the end. Yeah, like, oh, he doesn't have it right now. I wonder what's going on. Yeah. Well, then the kid doesn't want to get pulled. So then you mentioned how fatigue is the primary cause of a lot of these issues. They're pitching through that fatigue state, right. which and mechanical th- breakdown. Absolutely. And I think coaches and parents need to kind of take the reins on that. And if they see it and notice it, it's their job to pull the kid out, even if they're resistant. So a uh, day later that night, signs and symptoms of elbow shoulder issues that a kid might say, hey, my elbow hurts here, there. What are, what are parents and coaches need to be looking for? Yeah, definitely. So medial elbow pain is going to be the biggest at the elbow, but also posterior elbow pain. So pain in the back of the elbow due to that valgus extension overload, which may be a sign of breakdown of that UCL complex or the muscular complex on the medial elbow, just because of the extension in the back may create symptoms there rather than the medial elbow. If you touch the bone on the inside of the elbow, that may be tender to touch, but not necessarily tender with movement. So that's a good test as well. Um, Some of those range of motions that we talked about, so just rotation of the shoulder, have them go full overhead, see if they wince or describe any pain symptoms with that. How about up at the shoulder? Is there a place that you can touch or the place they'd be sore if they're feeling issues there? (laughs) Yeah, I commonly find that the posterior cuff is sore on almost every youth throwing athlete. Obviously, if you see any really increased tenderness, um, especially of the infraspinatus on the shoulder blade or that upper trap, then that may be an indication that they're kind of breaking down and getting some fatigue in the back of the shoulder. So uh, all of this accumulated stress, right? So doctors, therapists, trainers, you know, if a kid does come in having issues, what are the, you know, what are the signs? What are the, the, the classical uh, deficits that we're looking for, whether it's range of motion or strength, that we need to decide this kid needs to be shut down? Yeah, so uh, the three big ranges of motion at the shoulder that we're looking for are flexion, external rotation, and that cross-body adduction. Uh, if you measure these and see a deficit side to side of about five to eight degrees, then we know that something's getting tight, something's breaking down. The problem with rotation is you're going to see natural adaptations um, of external and inter rotation side to side. So we're looking for more 180 degrees of rotation because a lot of times the thrower may have 120 degrees of external and only 60 degrees of internal, but that that's not an issue in my opinion. That's 180 degrees of uh, external plus internal rotation. Correct. Okay. And so uh, when you have uh, what's called you know, external rotation gain, somebody who's going to uh, advance their external rotation with time and adaptation, uh, you have this other um, you know, common diagnosis that we'll get as therapists and trainers as GERD. How do you know if it's GERD or if it's just adaptation? So 
Herod is one of those hot topic issues that I really don't dwell on in the clinic. Um, the tough part is if you see 90 degrees, let's say the non-dominant arm has 90 degrees of external rotation and 90 degrees of internal rotation, just for example. And then on the dominant arm, you see 90 degrees of external rotation and 60 degrees of internal rotation. My question would be, how do you know that it's an internal rotation deficit or an external rotation deficit in a throwing athlete? A lot of times we're seeing almost equally as much as internal rotation deficits, also external rotation deficits. And you really have to use your diagnostic uh, tools to determine where they should be moving. Because a lot of times that external rotation, you'll feel muscular resistance, like, oh, maybe we can do some soft tissue and break through this range of motion. And that internal rotation, I don't like to stress too much just because the posterior capsule is very, very weak in these youth individuals and even older individuals. So. I'll make sure that they're getting to their end range of motion and internal, and then see if I can loosen up external to see if that's where the motion's coming from. Okay, so we've uh, hopefully restored range of motion to what we would expect it to be for a throwing athlete. Uh, let's talk about the strength deficits. What are we looking for strength-wise? What do we need to address? So in the youth athlete, I think it's the big ones at the shoulder would be uh, the external rotators or that posterior cuff just because of the constant eccentric strength or stress that we see. A lot of times they'll have them do a simple TheraBand external rotation for three sets of 20 with low to moderate resistance, and they really struggle to not have compensations. And we're looking for things like the upper trap involvement, uh, thoracic rotation to try and pull the resistance back. And when you think about it, the amount of stress during a throw or a pitch is going to be much greater than that TheraBand resistance that we're providing. The other things we look for, especially at the scapula, our lower trap activation and serratus anterior activation because those are commonly weak in the youth athlete. So I do a lot of uh, conditioning and endurance strengthening to help uh, condition those muscles. And then also looking down the chain, the lower half, the core is very, very weak in uh, a lot of youth individuals. They struggle with the single leg squat, single leg balance, things like that. Um, so we do a lot of lower half training to help them generate the force through the core, through the arm, and make their throw more efficient. So when you're dealing with junior high and high school athletes, and they walk in in what I call the Mr. Burns posture from The Simpsons, Yep. right? Everything's bent over. Do you follow a typical uh, two pulls for every one push type thing where you're working that posterior chain more so as your volume to uh, address that scapular forward rotation and uh, you know, obviously, uh, horizontal abduction of the scapula. I mean, you just really, really hammering home that, that posterior area. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If not two to one, maybe greater than that, just because that's where you're going to see the deficits. I rarely have uh, my throwing athletes do a ton of pressing. Obviously, closed chain stability, things like that are important, but I truly believe they really need to work on that posterior chain more than the anterior. And then what about the soft tissue from being all, you know, protracted and everything like that? What are you addressing soft tissue-wise? Most of the time for that, I'm addressing uh, pec minor. That's a big one. That helps with the posterior tipping of the scapula. Uh, pec major, just for external rotation and kind of opening up the chest. Looking at the deep neck flexors in these individuals is a big one as well because we don't typically look at the cervical spine as much, but I've seen strengthening the deep neck flexors kind of pull everything into that upright posture and take some resistance off the upper trap and other anterior structure. Yeah, try and do a, a chin tuck while also being in a really forward position is pretty hard to do. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you ever use any dry needling or uh, acu you know, mobility balls or anything like that? Yeah, I do a lot of uh, self-mobilization with acute mobility balls. Um, I do myself do a lot of dry needling. 
the most common area that I'll dry needle in these athletes is that posterior cuff. Um, sometimes I'll go into the pectoralis, some of the anterior musculature, if I see a significant uh, deficit in external rotation or that hunched posture. But a lot of times I'm focusing on trying to normalize that posterior cuff and increase the horizontal adduction. So um, I think lately a lot of we'll call it anterior shoulder pain has been kind of questioned whether or not it is truly the biceps or what another muscle that's overused and typically really involved in throwing is the lat. How can you help a therapist or uh, a trainer be able to differentiate between potentially a lat issue, lat tightness, lat pain uh, at that anterior shoulder versus just your typical bicep tendonitis? Yeah, I think this is a really, really difficult subject because we we, in our clinic, we call the bicep tendon the microphone of the shoulder. A lot of times it shows pain symptoms in that area, but it's not necessarily what it is. So what we'll do is we'll actually go through our range of motion and strength screen to see if we can find those deficits. If, I'm, if I have an athlete that's lacking 10 degrees of flexion due to lat tightness, I'm going to work on the lat and see if that pain reduces. Um, also work on scapular activations, maybe with like a scapular uh, assistance test to see if their pain improves just by helping their scapula move better. And then also I think posterior pain can also refer, um, posterior dysfunction can refer anteriorly um, by working on the posterior cuff. It will improve the anterior pain a lot of the time. Uh, we got a few more minutes. Uh, well, you just clap so then they'll be better. Okay. Um, let's quickly, I know you did, you're going to talk about it in the breakout and, they, and you talked about it. Um, on your talk, uh, weighted ball training, right? Let's, you know, two big things. When is it appropriate for a, a age group? And then also, how do you, if it is appropriate, how would you utilize it for a warm up? So, the difference between weighted ball velocity training and weighted ball warm up is significant. I don't advocate weighted ball velocity training potentially till the very end of high school if you're really trying to gain those extra miles an hour on your fastball to get that scholarship so you can go to the school you want. I probably shouldn't say that, but I understand that it happens and we're not going to avoid it, especially if you've done all the mechanical uh, efficiency drills, got strong, you're developed, uh, things like that. From a warm-up standpoint, I honestly think any age group can start to utilize these because it will help uh, create a more efficient arm path, teach them how to use the legs, how to use the T-spine, and give them better proprioception so they can work on um, the mechanics from a pretty young age with relatively low stress. And this can even start at eight to 10 years old. All right. So, uh, this is going to be two questions specific to your opinion, Chris. Mm -hmm. All right. What's the most important thing for a high school athlete to get noticed? Is it going to be velocity or injury history? To be a hundred percent honest, I don't think injury history is seen as a huge issue because we have so many injuries in baseball in the youth athlete. If you look at the statistics, pretty much half have significant injuries that have required a year of rehab. Colleges, pro scouts are really not looking at it. To be honest, they're looking at the velocity, how well they can throw, um, because they think they can make this person what they want it to be. They don't necessarily care if they've been injured or not, unfortunately. Yeah. All right, and the last question. Rookie of the year, Sandlot, Field of Dreams, or For Love of the Game, or Bull Durham. What's the best baseball movie you've seen? Sandlot. I agree. Chris Galina, physical therapist, talking about preparedness to throw. Ryan Collins, sports medicine update 2023. 
Again, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash preparedness to throw. Chris, the best way to, for somebody to get a hold of you? Uh, phone or email. Do you want me to give it? Um, the, the email, you can go ahead and... Okay. It's going to be Christopher Galena, spelled as you'll see it, dot U-T-H dot T-M-C dot E-D-U. And again, the link will be there in the show notes. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash preparedness to throw. And Ryan, is there a best way to get a hold of you? Uh, same email address, ryan.collins at memorialherman with two N's dot org. And of course, I'm Jeremy Jackson on the socials, so you know how to get a hold of me there. For the Sports Medicine Broadcast at the Sports Medicine Update, that is a wrap. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right, the Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.